From the DNA Company, this is the Unpilled Podcast with your host, Kashif Khan. Welcome back to the Unpilled Podcast. I'm Kashif Khan, CEO of the DNA Company. Today, we are highly honored to have four-star retired General Wesley Clark visiting us. Truly an honor. General Clark was a Supreme Commander in Europe and led the mission in Kosovo. He also ran for president in 2004. You can see him regularly on CNN as a contributor, uh, analyzing the military and national issues. General Clark actually has his own podcast called The Global Beacon. Welcome, General Clark. Honor to have you here. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. So I'll be straightforward. I have never spoken to someone that has spent over 30 years in military service at the high level that you have. And this truly, like, in, with integrity, is an honor to be speaking to you. And thank you for coming. Well, thanks a lot. Good to be with you. In the, in the work you've done, you know, we, we, we've, we've done some work with the military. And I think about, you know, you've had that on the ground experience and the things that we've been dealing with, theoretically, kind of call it in the lab and in science, you've actually seen it. And this is why it's so interesting to be able to talk to you and validate some of the things that we think we know. And as an example, we haven't talked about this yet, but about a year ago, we were approached by an organization that works with the US military in terms of their black ops, the special forces. And they work on human optimization. And the big part of their focus is the brain. So they were working on issues like PTSD, stress, trauma. And they asked us to use our DNA technology to identify who should actually be deployed in active combat, right? And that was a challenge for us to say, well, what are we even looking for? And the thing that we landed on was PTSD, that trauma. And we actually identified genetically who was prone for PTSD. We knew in advance who was going to come back with trouble. And this is where I ask you, like, you've been there, you've seen it. You know, how big of a problem is this right now for veterans and for the military and, you know, having to manage people coming back with this trauma that just stays with them? Well, nobody... Nobody deploys for war and goes through the experience. It doesn't come back changed emotionally. Right. So it's a question of, you know, what degree, how are you affected by the experience? And it's a very specific, individually um, effective thing. But the generalizations I have are that um, the more control you have during the time that this happens, the more responsibilities you have, the less likely you are to be affected. So if you're an officer or a non-commissioned officer in charge, you're less likely to be affected than if you're just driving in the back of a truck and hit by an, in an improvised explosive device. Right. It's, it's partly a function of your uh, sense of control versus loss of control. Being exposed to hazards that you have no ability to affect it's um so i think that's one thing um i think the second thing is um training so i think the the more well trained you are the more likely your body is to and your mind is to respond to certain stimuli in prepared uh pathways so uh in in my case for example when i was in an ambush and hit um i responded automatically if I had been a 19-year-old soldier without much training, maybe I would have not been able to respond the same way. 
Right. So I think part of it's a function of training. Now you're getting at a different aspect of the mind. <clears throat> we always knew that there were people who were hot reactors versus cold reactors in the military. You can do tests on it. Some people respond to stress and the, the huge, uh, with a certain jump in blood pressure immediately, a big surge of adrenaline, and, and others are cool, calm, and collected, but, but there's advantages to both types. And, um, and so uh, maybe that's one of the things your genetic markers turn out. I'd like to know kind of what you found and how it correlates with behavior, training, and achievement. Yeah, it, you know, what you speak of actually leads me to, it's the question of like nature versus nurture. It's, it's a little bit of both, <clears throat> I agree with you, meaning that there's your innate hard wiring. What are you capable of? And that's genetically predetermined. Then there's to what degree did you experience the thing? What's that load, that weight that was put on you, right? And how prepared were you? And this is where when you talk about things like training, you know, the better the person is in terms of their training, the more in depth, the more likely they're going to come out fine. But it's also how was the able, was that person actually able to get past the training, right? Which is the same thing that would allow them, if they have the innate ability to deal with trauma, it, it doesn't actually start at the traumatic, traumatic event. It starts within the training itself. Can they even get past being forced to stay awake for two days straight in a hole somewhere, right? Can they, can they actually deal with bullets flying in training and then like, I can't do this. I'm not gonna, I, this is, I picked the wrong thing, right? So it, it, it kind of like you, through that aggressive training, the brilliant work that you guys have done to set that up, you kind of filter out the people who probably genetically don't have the ability to cope anyway, right? And so some people have the mindset to push through and they will, and they will get all the way through, and but they still may not have the genetic ability to, it's literally one gene. There's a gene called uh, BDNF, or sorry, we're, we're focusing on uh, ADRA2B, so there's a gene called ADRA2B, which determines your noradrenaline response. Noradrenaline is that neurochemical that fires in the brain when you have that, call it negative stimuli. You know, something as simple as I'm having a fight with the spouse or my kids, all the way to, you know, Hummer explodes, right? That's the chemical that allows you to either bind or forget. Like I literally imprint this negative stimuli and remember it or didn't even happen i move on i hold the grudge don't hold the grudge hold the trauma so there's that that's scientifically proven like we know that's there and i do think when you when i hear you speak about training and the process that in that process you would filter all the people into it like it would just happen they would without even trying right uh but then of course for those that have the worst outcome we found in our study that they did have the deletion for that to be meaning that they were imprinting negatively. Right? So, but Kashif, there's, there's one other thing that's always puzzled me about DNA. You know, when we, when we started studying biology seriously and evolution back in the 19th century, we discovered dominant versus recessive genes. Yes. We realized that genes were part of chromosomes and, um, we believed, I, I, I was, as a junior high school student um, under the National Defense Education Act of 1958, we, there were a group of us who were assembled and given funding to irradiate fruit flies. And the idea was you would take these fruit flies, some have yellow eyes, some have red eyes, 
and um, you would um, put the larva in a in a tube and you would x-ray the tube and see if the genetics were changed by the radiation. And this was contrasted to the Soviet geneticist, a guy named Lasenko, who going back into Marxist political thought, thought that you could reform mankind by, um, by changing social status. So in other words, it was like you would have, if you cut off the tail of a puppy dog, its children, its, its, its pups wouldn't have tails. So right. we made a big deal about this. And yet, and yet, as we've studied, we discovered uh, all of the details of how cells work. And, and we discovered the difference between DNA and RNA. It turns out that um, there are a lot of genes that get expressed, and there are a lot of genes that don't get expressed. And right. actually, it's a more complicated situation, and the environment does condition the expression of genes. So in your testing on DNA and particularly on people uh, reacting under stress, um, isn't it possible that different um, environmental conditions can um, then affect the expression of, of this gene triggering the adrenaline output in certain circumstances? And isn't one of the things we should be looking at is to examine um, whether or not people can be conditioned to handle greater stress through the right kind of training. Now, that doesn't, I'm not assuming that that means, hey, if, if you're excited by loud noises, okay, we'll put you in a room and subject you to a lot of loud noises and then give you uh, ice cream while you're listening to the loud noises. So your pleasure receptors uh, associate that with loud noise. I, that, that's a little simplistic. Right. But, you know, if you look at where this is going, it's going to, um, Yes, you can do some basic genetic screening, but also going into the, how do you modify behavior and response? So you, you've nailed it. And by the way, you're hired. Anytime you want to work in the genetic lab, you're, you're, we got a job for you because you, <laughs> you already know what to do. So you've nailed it in terms of what has been the gap in genetics, right? Why hasn't it been? There's this thing that we knew that was so valuable. It's, our, it's literally our human operations manual but we weren't deriving the value out of it. Why? Because it typically ended at the genes. This gene means this, this gene means that, and it was meant to be deterministic. But the expression, as you said, is affected not only by environment, but also nutrition and lifestyle. So environment, what you're exposed to, what you breathe, what you, you know, all that type of thing. Lifestyle, like how do I exercise? What levels of stress? How do I sleep? And of course, nutrition. Those are the things that you could have suboptimal genes, but if you're eating something that augments the genetic expression, all of a sudden that suboptimal gene is working at an optimal level, right? So maybe that's why, you know, um, that, um, that for, to create aggressiveness, um, we need meat. Right. And yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, before um, football games, at West Point, the athletes used to have lots of roast beef, and right. uh, <laughs> and that was a sort of pre-athletic meal. And uh, even though it doesn't seem like taking in a lot of protein just before an athletic contest uh, or or combat would be able to be digested and <laughs> move into your body that way, maybe it triggers 
the hormones or the enzymes in your body to change the way that you respond to certain stimuli. Well, there's a lot possible? of, things, yeah, there's a lot of things going on there. If you're eating red meat, you're getting, first of all, a lot of protein, like you said, right? So muscle is fueled and ready. It's not exhausted and, and, you know, lingering and looking for nutrition. There's B12, which is a highly anti-inflammatory, uh, you know, micro ingredient that would reduce that brain fog or pain or, you know, again, support recovery. There's also fat, which is good for your brain, right? So the eating fats is actually, you know, getting those neurochemicals and neural linkages connected and firing, you need fat. So it's actually a, a great superfood. And then there's a lot of other things going on, but yes, that's an example. And this is where we've actually looked at, you know, for example, example, Chinese populations and going back to the point you made, which I didn't answer yet about, you know, uh, if you're born with a certain version, you know, you know, cut the tail off the dog, does the next generation not have the tail, right? Yeah. So it's a kind of a combination of all the things you're saying. As an example, we found that recently there's been a surge in specific cancers like breast cancer in China. Wasn't a problem. They didn't have this problem all of a sudden, right? What has changed in China? They've moved from a very sort of agricultural uh, small town you know, culture to like big city, I'm eating McDonald's because I'm busy culture. What, what changed? So culturally, traditionally, green tea was part of, you know, the diet, like wherever you went, you sat down anywhere, you, you were given green tea and it, it happened all day long. And green tea had a very potent antioxidant in it called ECGC, right? So that, that ingredient, that, that, mod, that molecule was highly implicit in what's called glutathionization, like and a detox, you know, clear, cleaning of the blood, removing toxins. Those toxins are the same things that would cause inflammation to various cells and lead to in disease, inflammation being the root cause of disease. So now you, it kind of answers both those questions because all of a sudden you have this population that is getting sick because they're not doing what they used to do. And you also find, well, you know, other countries don't have this problem because they're missing the detox genes. There's actually, you know, three or four genes that make up your detox system, that glutathionization process. They don't have it. Forget about what version or what variant. They don't even have it because, as you said, cut the tail off the dog. If you spend, a, you know, a thousand years drinking green tea, generation after generation after generation after generation, and other things like that, like detox is a really big part of the culture, right? Prevention versus reaction. Then you don't need it. You use, you don't use it, you lose it, right? And over time, you find that you have this massive population of people that don't detox well, that all of a sudden are exposed to the wrong thing that they weren't designed for, because both things happen. They inherited their genetic legacy, which is we don't need detox as we do it externally. And now the environmental load, or in this case, the nutrition load, is now not what their genes are matched for, and they're getting sick. It's, it's a very interesting analogy, you know, because um, one of the things we know about races is that uh, melatonin is developed in response to the environment over generations. Right. The question is, you know, how long? How long if you were, uh, you know, when, we, when mankind came out of Africa, how, how many generations did they have to sp spend in Europe to, uh, to lose the melatonin that gave them skin protection from the equatorial sun. Was it 
50 generations, 10 generations, whatever. Um, because we know that, you know, people are, uh, the skin as an organ is responsive to the environment. And so um, the principle that you're citing is applicable across all kinds of discrimination between people. And this is an interesting thing that I wanted to dive in with you on in terms of leadership in the military, because we've done a lot of work with executives to map out who should actually be doing what job. You know, there's, there's what you think and what you desire and what you aspire to, but what are you actually wired for? And at the genetic level, we've figured this out. We've determined you know, the reward-seeking chemical, dopamine, what drives you to achieve, but also drives you towards pleasure. There's different ways people experience that. There's serotonin, your, call it your mood regulator, and what would make you potentially irritable, but also make you see details that other people don't see, right? So make you give you that kind of wisdom. Uh, and we talked about noradrenaline, and then there's, there's also things like neuroticism or, you know, what weight do you give things and what value and importance you are able to move on. So that profiling we've done, this is where I would ask you, you know, the, the hierarchy, when we think of hierarchy, military is one of the first places where you see a very clear example. And to get to that top, it's, there's a lot of people at the bottom striving. Why is it and who is it? Who is that person that actually, how would you describe that person that's in a leadership role? What are the traits? I mean, there are lots of different qualities that people have. And um, in the military, uh, being selected for promotion is particularistic. It's about relationships. So um, I always look at, at former President Eisenhower. He was the third of seven boys in a family. And I always felt that gave him an advantage because he grew up in an environment where there was a lot of social interaction with contemporaries. And so uh, that's the nurture part of it. We always say in the leadership business that it's nurture, not nature. Right. In other words, if you look at it statistically, for example, in business, you see that most successful executives are between five foot 10 and six foot two tall. If you're in American business, there's a certain heightism discrimination there. And, um, and so if you're more than 6'2", six, 6'3", six, you're looking down on people. If you're that guy's stuck up, he's looking down on me. And if you're shorter, you're always looking up at people. And it's like, oh, he must be subordinate. He couldn't be a leader because he's always looking up at people. Right. And it's associated with sort of the experience of growing up in a family, as seeing a father or a figure who's taller. And that in turn is associated with male dominance in society. And, um, and there's a lot of these cultural traits. Now, they may not be the same in other societies. And so what you're sorting through is a genetic basis, but, and it would be very interesting to see the relationship that of cultural basis. For example, in China, uh, Mao was a big man. Right. Deng Xiaoping was not. In China, height goes from north to south. And the further north you are, if you're a Manchu, or Mongolian, you tend to be larger if you're from the southern part of China, Canton or, or Guangzhou, places like this, Kunming, you're not as large. And so uh, maybe in China, it doesn't signify the same thing as it does in the United States and Western cultures. Correct. Yeah. You know, uh, President Trump was the, he was the perfect human being, perfect male specimen, six foot two, six foot three, blonde hair, blue eyed. I mean, that's the sort of archetype of business leadership in America, strong handshake, et cetera. 
Um, doesn't mean the same thing in China. Right, exactly. Yeah. Deng Xiaoping, who was an incredible leader in China for decades, who was, or um, you had Napoleon, who conquered most of Europe at one point, who was, you have Vladimir Putin today, who well, one person told me after they'd met Putin, they said, I'll tell you one thing about Putin. I said, what's that? I said, he's short. <laughs> uh, and so maybe he, maybe this is part of the friction in U.S.-Russian relationships because of the way we see things culturally. Yeah, so the cultural aspect, there's there's the actual, the work of it, like what does it take to actually get the job done, right? Right, right. Then there's this archetype, this prototype, like who, what do we, who do we envision? What what gap are we trying to fill? And that's where you're you're right on that culturally, it's so different depending where you go. Uh, there's some places where, you know, there's countries where you wouldn't think where there's women in leadership roles, and they don't think twice about it because for them that's normal. Whereas, you know, countries where you would think that there's more talk about why aren't women in leadership roles, it just doesn't happen. So uh, yeah, that's an awesome insight. And we see this in terms of the work that we do with executives where you'll still find, you'll find that there's the guy or the gal that's wired for the job, but they're not part of the club. And so they don't make it. And what they end up doing is, and we've seen this multiple times, they are the, they are the foundation for what's being built, but they don't get the credit. So they are, it's their brain, it's their work. They are the leader so unconsciously, but there's somebody else who's the face. We see happens this all the time in life. Happen, it starts on the school ground. When, uh, when you're in elementary school and they're choosing sides to, for scrub football right. or, or football, and you look at it, you line up, say, and you get two team caps, says, I'll take him, I'll take him. And um, it usually goes by size. Correct. Yeah. Doesn't mean you pick the best athlete necessarily, but the more the athlete gets to exercise, the better he gets. Right. And so, you know, if you look at the in, in college sports today, you look at these quarterbacks moving from school to school under the NCAA transfer rules. They got it. You know, a guy goes into to work to play for Alabama. He may be a fantastic athlete, but <laughs> Tui Tagovailoa is there in front of him, and after one season, he says, "I." I think I'm as good as Tua, but uh, but the coach never gives me a chance to get in the game. I'm never going to develop my skills. Or the same thing in baseball. If you're a bench warmer and you don't get out to, to try against the top pitcher on the other team, you're never going to get better. And so uh, there's a lot of this that's um, where it's re reinforcing. So this leads me to my next question, Kashish. You're looking at, at genes, but how do you look at the expression Oh, those genes. Right. Other than performance, is there a is there a genetic is there um, a chemical way of looking at the RNA that causes the gene to be expressed? So, first of all, the short answer: yes, there is. Right. So you can literally now quite efficiently measure what we call epigenetics, the expression. We still find so one challenge with the genetic industry as a whole. It's a, it's a single income product, meaning your DNA doesn't change. And so all these genetic testing companies feel like they're left behind because they provide you a DNA test and there's nothing left to sell you because that's it. That's your DNA. And so 
the product then ends up becoming, okay, we need to figure out to make more, a way to make more money. So let's start selling data, right? We have a lot of good data. Let's sell it. Yeah. Yep. And so what the problem with that is the front end product is no longer, how do I give the patient the most value? It's how do I give my data buyer the best data? And it becomes designed that way. And the same thing has happened in the epigenetic space where they can only mirror what genetic tests are doing. Because if a patient or a consumer has bought some kind of DNA test, they expect that thing to be reported back in terms of epigenetics. So now we have to mirror it. So the same challenge is extending into the ancillary products where they're not looking at the right stuff. And so the science of it, extremely valuable, the practical application, what we've been doing is saying, as opposed to using tests that don't give you enough, we should instead do what we did, which is study people to actually monitor epigenetics, monitor when you have two people with the same poor cardiovascular hardware. Genetically, we know that what's going on inside, you're not doing the best, right? So you're more prone to inflammation, more prone to disease. Why did one person get sick and the other didn't? So rather than looking at the epigenetics, meaning how did you express, let's look at what load causes the expression. We exactly. did it. Now that's, right? the, that's the key insight. So let's, let's take it to, to a specific case. So human growth hormone. Right. Um, there was a swimming coach, well-known swimming coach, who saw his, saw his aging process and decided to take human growth hormone. And um, now this is all hearsay evidence. I don't have this directly. But, but um, his, his hair grew back darker. Uh, his testosterone levels increased. Um, he became much more vigorous. And uh, a couple of years later, he died from cancer. Right. And um, so um, if you look at um, something like human growth hormone, how does that interact with the RNA and the, and the genetics of a person? And is that the kind of um, elixir of the prolongation of life that people are looking at to sort of take the good out of it and then figure out how to eliminate this, uh, its ability to, to, the, to instigate cancer in the body. Yeah, so there's there's two layers to that. And now again, you would have to first personalize and understand what is this person doing hormonally? And we've been working on this in terms of biohormone replacement therapy, even at the recreational level, people that are just trying to look young all the way up to preventing cancer. Absolutely. Right? There's a whole industry in China on youth. Yes, you yes. know, it starts with Botox and it goes through stem cells. Yes. And, um, and, you know, we always think of China being an Asian culture that respects the elderly, but it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, things have changed for sure. And it's it, what we've looked at is to answer your question. It's whenever you're whenever you're doing something that gets into hormones. Right. So human growth hormone, for example, so to have elevated testosterone levels is a great thing. It's, it's a single, for men, for men, sorry, it's the single greatest marker for longevity. High testosterone levels, you're going to live long with vitality. It's not just about I'm old, but I'm old and I'm walking and I'm moving, right? So, but there's a, there's a second half to that. And this is why I said there's two answers, which is it's not just testosterone. It's not, I have testosterone. Testosterone converts and does other things before you get rid of it. So women have a monthly cycle, as we know, men actually have a daily cycle. So you take progesterone, you convert it to testosterone, but it doesn't end there. 
You can either convert that into estrogen. You can clear that testosterone as it is, as testosterone, a clean androgen, as we call it. Or you can convert it into something called DHT. DHT is that manly man. If you want to look like Dwayne Johnson, the rock, you need DHT, right? And he probably has a lot of it, which is why we say he's genetically blessed. But what is that blessing? It's DHT. So he's converting his testosterone, most likely also not clearing it, which means you can convert your testosterone to DHT, but if you pee it out before you use it, it's not going to help you anyway. So there's another gene that blocks it from being cleared out. So what degree do you get? So now if you had that scenario, well, guess what? DHT is also highly toxic, right? So if you're adding more testosterone to your system and that's your genetic pathway, your net result is more DHT, not more testosterone. Yes, it starts there, but you have genes that are instructing, take it all and convert it to DHT. And by the way, don't let it go. Let's hold on to it. If you have that version of that gene also, right? So for that person, that is a recipe for prostate enlargement and cancer, right? For, it's also a, a recipe for hair loss. When you look at, you know, for example, at your age, I can still see you swooping the hair over your head and putting it into place because there's enough to do that, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, look at me, there's not much left. Right, that's DHT. So that that potent androgen that is literally toxic that will cause death to the follicles, but also enlarge the prostate. So, without knowing what you're gonna do with what you're putting into your body, the 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 gap in medical thinking is you assume that what you put in is what you use it as, and what you retain it as. But guess what? There's genes instructing everything about everything. There's trillions of cells that are doing a lot of different things there's genes that are dictating what happens with that thing that you just put into your body. Something well, you know, that, one of the, one of the most important things you're saying, and I'm taking from what you're saying, Krishish, is that there are um, external indicators that uh, tell yes. um, a, a, a wise, astute observer what's going on internally. Yes. And so this, you're mentioning hair loss or whatever. And, exactly. and yeah, my hair is getting thin. I guess that means I'm i I'm still a manly man. <laughs> I'm losing it. But, um, but the point is that um, if you really understood all of these markers, sometimes you hear things like, well, if a guy has a line across his earlobe, that's an indicator of heart disease. Correct, yeah. And, um, and so, you, or, or you look at the skin or you look at the, the eye and uh, say, well, I can see, you know, by looking at your eyes, your eye looks, looks cloudy or something. There are all kinds of sort of folk expressions of this. Right. But, uh, but what is, you know, what is scientifically validated and, uh, and then what do we do about it if we want to have a better, more productive life? That's yep. the question. And, and it's getting into the why behind things. If you know that the wrinkle in the ear and statistically, depending who you ask, there is evidence of that, right? But you got to go beyond that. Okay. Look for a wrinkle or not to why, what, why is that happening? Right. What is it? And if you figure out the why it's happening, you now know actually what to do to the person to make sure they don't get the heart disease. What's causing that wrinkle? Is it lack of circulation? Is it too much cholesterol preventing blood flow? Is it, you know, an anti-inflammatory response of some sort, you know, which is pointing towards inflammation somewhere in the body? So you got to figure out what's going on. And right. you know, not that any one of those things are what's going on, but it could be. Yeah. So that leads you to what we believe healthcare should look like is let's support the system rather than masking the symptom. The symptom is I'm sick, 
But guess what? You did something 10 years ago and you continue to do it wrong for 10 years to lead you to that thing that took you to the doctor. There's a system failure going on somewhere that you need to actually be supporting to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I think one question that always comes up when we talk about genetics, you know, it's controversial, but we have to touch on it is people always talk about super soldiers, the military, you know, you're, there's investments, there's things going on that we don't need to ask you about that you may know about that are classified in terms of how do we become the best, right? And the best is our soldiers. So it could be external, like, you know, robotics, bionics, you know, those types, and it could be internal, right? Let's, let's analyze. And, and this example we just talked about, about DHT and optimizing the testosterone pathway and take the guy the wiry guy that couldn't put on muscle and give him that capacity or give the sort of thicker person who doesn't have the ability to lose the weight and give that ability, right? So is there any work being done there that we can talk about, you know, without crossing the line? And how much of us, is, uh, how much of us could be potentially a threat where you have countries like China that have less regulation on things like genetic research and are advancing because it's just open territory? Well, there's no doubt that work's being done on this, and not just for super soldiers, but, you know, the military goes to professional sports. You look at uh, professional athletes and what they're trying to do with their bodies. So, for example, you know, a, a great baseball player will tell you that he can hit because he can, he can see the stitches on the baseball as it's coming to him at 96 miles an hour. And he can tell, by the way, the stitches are moving, whether it's a, a sinking ball or a curve ball, which way it's going to curve, really. He can do that in, in like one-tenth of a second. He can process that information, really? I mean, some people doubted it. And uh, yet, um, if you were a professional athlete and you were your, uh, your life depended on it, or if you were the owner of a professional sports team, you'd be really looking at this. Imagine if there was some um, visual acuity training device that together right. with some drug could give a professional athlete superior uh, visual cortex skills so that he could take in information greater. You know, they always say in professional football or with, you know, pro style quarterbacks, they see the field, they can look around and they can see an open, they can spot an open runner, bang, they release that pass. Well, suppose that's not just a function of practice or training. Suppose you could do something um, biochemically to stimulate that part of the brain that does that to enhance the development of those neural networks that help him do that. I mean, we always say a lot, a lot of the brain is unused, but then we say a lot of DNA is, is unused also. We just don't fully understand how it all fits together probably. But, but so when you're looking at what you're doing, you're looking at the fundamental start point with DNA. Then the question is the expression of the genes and now you're looking at RNA, or you should be. And then you must take that into the training and the environment side and look at whether it can be enhanced. The other approach is the Chinese approach, which would be um, doping the embryo with, or, or, or even the egg uh, and implanting it using CRISPR to right. change the gene slightly so that uh, you are giving birth to a super soldier. Um, every one of the, the children looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger <laughs> and has Terminator eyes and, uh, you know, 
can lift 500 pounds with a single arm. Maybe that's what's going to happen. But, you know, there are tremendous moral implications of this search. And this is the challenge, because if you have a nation for which, you know, the, the global balance of power is so important and the regulatory landscape is just completely different and there's it's open territory for them to do what they meanwhile you know the the moral considerations are given more weight here and so there's things that we just won't do right um how well, do you certainly things we shouldn't be doing right you know if you go back and look at military history you'll find the chinese sorry the germans and the japanese did terrible terrible experiments on human beings there was a, a a japanese unit that did all kinds of horrible things to to chinese prisoners captured uh, in nanjing and recorded it and uh, the germans this horrible dr mengele who was experimenting on 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 jewish detainees by infecting them by cutting off body parts and so forth uh these were terrible experiments that were grotesque and um and violated all ethical norms and were war crimes. Some of them were not punished and they should have been. This a Japanese unit, I think it was called the 731 unit or 732 unit, something like that. It was a terrible, terribly uh, corrupt, uh, immoral organization. And yet they had doctors who supposedly had taken the Hippocratic Oath. So right. now you're faced, you know, as we develop more and more into biology and go down the pathways that, uh, your scientific skills can take us, we have to be more and more concerned with the moral and ethical implications of this. I mean, what is a human being? I, I saw on Drudge Report the other day that there's an outcry that some human genes have been implanted in monkeys or monkey genes have been implanted in humans. There's a, maybe in stem cells to see what can be done. And you know, there's always the idea that, uh, well, you can use a, a pig to grow certain human organs and uh, really, okay, so uh, if you transplant that into someone, what does that mean? And what's the real interface? We probably don't really understand any of that right now, scientifically. We know kind of what works, but we don't understand it. But the moral and ethical implications of creating cyborgs or uh, human-animal hybrids, uh, it, it, it's, it's, catastrophic it for can human be. civilization yep. as we know it. it, it you don't very know when, when you look at a person and you see who they are and you look into their eyes and um, you think you know them by looking at them, by knowing something about their culture, um, we're, we're going into a different universe when we start genetically modifying people and putting, um, you know, an, a hawk or an eagle has incredible vision. Correct. Yeah. And then, and, and, and we're just now looking at the brain of brains of birds, which have a completely different brain physiology and structure than mammals do, than, than, than primates do. And, and asking ourselves, well, how can, how can a crow be as smart as it is when it doesn't have a, you know, a cortex in the front? And it's, it's using crows never forget an adversary. <laughs> they use tools. How does this work? So there's so much that we don't know. Your DNA research is, you know, you're, you're a very important part 
of one part of a series of investigations about about life. And um, so it's very interesting to talk to you and see where you are. But the frontiers are so much broader and deeper. It's, and I just hope um, in this we move forward, we can remain within agreed moral ethical boundaries for humanity. It's, it's 19th, 18th century China, female infanticide was widely practiced. Now the question is, should parents be able to choose the sex of their offspring? That's that's the most <clears throat> obvious question. And then there's, well, can I make him taller, smarter, give him blue eyes, blonde hair, make sure he doesn't uh, lose his hair later in life. And um, what's the what's the what's the basis for this? What does it say to our spiritual values about this? Is this the way mankind should go? And if so, why? And if not, why? So you're leaving us on an insight as we close up. We're literally, science is limited by imagination. We're getting to the point where technology, we're not really prevented from doing much. You know, if you can imagine it, there's somebody out there that's trying to build it. And the intention kind of drives what's being built. You got guys like Elon Musk that are building chips that you can plant in your head. And the cyborg, you know, world is coming true. And you have genetic research going on. They may be, you know, counterintuitive to natural evolution in countries that are out of our awareness, right? And this is where the future of tech and biotech crossing over into like human life there's again the limit is what you can imagine what you've seen in the movies we're at that time now where the technology exists so let's just hope that we have the right regulation in place to make sure we're all doing the right things general clark is honored that you joined us here today this is an awesome conversation i feel like we need another two hours just to go into what we just started hopefully oh gosh i think you have to ask yourself you know in conclusion you have to ask yourself are there any questions which shouldn't be asked. Right. Are there any truths which shouldn't be discovered? Or is mankind, humankind, innately driven to cross the frontiers, to push the boundaries, to go beyond the known at every step? And if you go back into history and you look at Galileo's struggles with the Pope and and the copernican theory of, of the solar system and and move forward from that you see that in every age in every civilization there have been attempts to bound the frontiers of of science and learning and exploration just as in today autocratic societies limit information so it's a tough balance and um there are a lot of ethical questions that have to be asked and moving forward, you know, humans, you'll help us answer them. Humans desire progress. It doesn't matter where you're at. Look at any time and look into the future. Wherever we at, wherever we are at, will never be good enough. There will always be somebody pushing the envelope, looking for the next step, the next level of whatever we're doing. Science will continue to progress. Technology will get better. We're going to see things that we didn't even think were possible. And like you said, we just got to make sure that's that there's some guardrails to keep us aligned in terms of, you know, keeping it ethical and moral. General Clark, it was awesome for you to join us. This was truly an honor. 
I should mention that, you know, General Clark has his own podcast. If you want to hear more from him and his insights and the experience and all that he's seen in this world, look up the Global Beacon. Uh, awesome series. And you can also find him on social at General Clark. Again, General, thank you for joining us. It was a great conversation. Hope to speak to you again soon. Honored to talk to you. Thank you, Kashif. And good luck with DNA. Thank you. Thank you. From the DNA Company, this has been the Unpilled Podcast with your host, Kashif Khan. Thanks for listening.